you will, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, uh, the final book in your New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 in just a moment. Again, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 21, will begin in just a moment in verse 1. There's, uh, there's an old saying that has uh, endured uh, for the course of uh, my lifetime, and you know, cliches persist because they tend to communicate, at least at some level, at some point, an element or elements of truth. And so one of these old cliches is that figures lie and liars figure. And my head has been spinning a bit lately with figures and trying to understand what they mean. We've heard a lot in uh, the world. There's been 80 million people infected with COVID. One point, uh, uh, 18 million of them have have died. In this country, 19 million have been infected, and uh, 1.8 million have died. And all of those things are daunting, and that as a culture, a nation, we're throwing about $4 trillion into the kitty to resolve some of this. On top of the trillion that we were throwing into the kitty that we didn't have, which brings our national debt to $27 trillion. When I became adult, an adult in 1980, the federal debt was $1 trillion. Now it's $27 trillion. The obligations of the federal government are about $80 trillion. And what do we make of them? I, I, don't, I don't know, but the thing that sobered me as much as those numbers sober me is that a number of astute people that observe phenomenons have noted that most likely because of the repercussions of the COVID pandemic and the handling thereof, about one in five churches will close in America, about 20%. It was expressed another way uh, this past week. My nephew, who is a pastor uh, in Dothan, said that in six months, the church has declined at a rate that it would have normally taken 10 years to accomplish. In six months, there's been 10 years worth of damage done to the church. And that, that's discouraging to me in a way. You go, can we survive or are we going to survive? And the truth is, yes. The truth is that the church will endure. I don't know if we'll survive the pandemic. I don't know if we'll survive as a nation as we know it. But I do know this. I do know this. That Jesus Christ is and will continue to build His church. It will endure until the appointed time of His return. And as we sit here right now, we can even make the, uh, the claim that we are His glorious bride 
awaiting the consummation and our ultimate glorification in His presence forever. In a, a world that's... And I, hate, I really hate words like this, but in a world that's unsafe, it's insecure. Let me tell you something. The church of the living God, the church of the living God, it is safe, it is secure, and it is sure. Jesus is and will build His church. He will perfect it. He will take us to our appointed destiny. And so I want to take these next few weeks and uh, for us to think about the church. And I think the church is vital. We, we had this discussion in these months of 2020 about essential services. And several politicians have noted, and I agree. If you're running a business that's feeding your family or feeding the families of others, it is an essential business. But let me tell you this, more essential than the commerce of this world is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been designated to reside in the church. And we are essential, and we are eternal. And I don't know what the government has in mind. Of course, they don't know what they have in mind. But, I know this. The church and the truth upon which the church is built will endure. We always like to be on the side of profit or the winning team or whatever. Well, I've said it for years and years and years, and this is true. The church is ultimately the only game in town. We, we are the ones that will endure. We're the only ones that know anything, that can say anything about certainty. And I, I think that another cliche, absence makes the heart grow fonder, is not really true. That as people have chosen to absent themselves from the vital presence, the essential nature of what the church is designed to do, that we would gather and look at one another and say, yes, indeed, we love our Savior, and we love one another, and we are here for His glory. I think the church in America has become dismissive of that great reality and that great phenomenon, that yes, indeed, we exist for the glory of God, and we gather for the glory of God. But let me say, it is not important to say, it is true to say, that we gather for the good of one another. And so, let us think about our reality and God's reality, that we are indeed the glorious bride of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Read with me if you will, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve gates on the and, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed, and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, once again, thank you for your truth, your word to us. We live in a day that There is great anxiety, there is great concern, but in you, there's not only great hope, there is sufficient hope. To live in a despairing world, to be the light in an ever-darkening world, to live even in days in which we may know affliction, to know the great joy of the salvation earned by Jesus Christ and granted to us by Your grace and for Your glory. Lord, bless us this day as we study. May we hear Your truth. May You be honored and glorified. May we be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just so you know, particularly if you're kind of new here, there is a bit of a method to my madness and that if you'll note, uh, uh, we took a break from our exposition of Luke back in the fall. We did a a Reformation uh, sermon, and then we uh, moved back into Luke, and then we did a series, uh, or or at least a sermon for Thanksgiving, and then moved into our celebration of Christmas for four services. I tend to like to start off the year with a bit of a particular focus for anywhere from three to six sermons. And so we're going to speak about the, the hope and the truth and the power, the, the, the origin and the destiny of the church of the living God for these next uh, few weeks. How it is that we're to live and function uh, in this world. And then uh, soon thereafter, probably in the month of February, we'll once again be back in our studies working verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. And so, uh, let us look here at chapter 21 and go into it for a few minutes. And most of us are rather uh, uh, overwhelmed uh, by the book of Revelation. It is a bit of an enigma. 
uh, if you're uh, around my age, I'm sure if you grew up in the church in the 70s, uh, somebody tried to scare you to death about uh, getting the mark of the beast and being left behind at the rapture and all of these type things. And I, I'm not saying to the degree that they're biblical truth there. We preach them. Uh, there, there is a coming apocalypse and Christ is going to return. But as I've studied more and more, and increasingly the book of Revelation, uh, there is some sense where the more I know, the less I know. Uh, that is, uh, there are things that I must say uh, will reside uh, within the mysterious counsels of Almighty God, and uh, we'll certainly know them as He works them out according to His plan. Uh, but we do see in the book of Revelation a, a warning, uh, both to the church 2,000 years ago and the letters to the seven churches, and I believe they're applicable to every church and every age as a word of encouragement, as a word of warning, as how to live uh, uh, under uh, internal and external uh, pressures. And then we are uh, reminded of the great truth of the gathering uh, in heaven around uh, the throne from whence all authority and power uh, goes out into the world, and authority and power to judge the world. And much of Revelation is taken up uh, with the descriptions that I believe uh, are future in, in, in nature. Again, that, that can be argued. I'm not, uh, uh, some would say all of these things have actually happened, and, and I'm not in that camp. I think they are future. And for the most part, I think, as we come to the conclusion of this book, that as we see the final days of human history and the inauguration of the eternal state, that we do understand that we're talking about something that is in the future. It is something that we look forward to. It's not something that in, in, in any measurable or normative way of thinking has been accomplished. Although, again, we live with the now and not yet. We were looking at uh, Romans 8.28 for a moment in Sunday school this morning. And it speaks of those uh, who have uh, been predestined and then they have been justified and then they have been glorified. Well, even glorified is in the past tense, in that passage. Okay? Now, okay. Y'all are very glorious. Okay? I'll, I'll, I'll just give that one to you. Okay? But we await our glorification. But let me tell you something. It is as sure and certain as the existence of God Himself. And that's why I believe Paul puts it in the past tense. That we are glorified. We are a glorified people. It is certain to occur. And so we see that moment in our future here in Revelation 21 that John describes for us this reality of something new. Not just the thing that's to follow. Not that kind of new. Not a new model of car. But something that is qualitatively, distinctively, decidedly different. A new age is coming into being that has going to be surpassing in glory and it's going to be for our good and for the glory of God and this old order of things, this, this thing that we know as earth and the old systems that are a part of our world, they are going to be destroyed. They're going to be dissolved. They're going to pass from the scene. And John describes uh, coming uh, from heaven, uh, this new city, this new thing, the new Jer Jerusalem. And then he describes it as prepared as a bride. Now there's discussion and you can go down and look at verse 9 of our text and you see that uh, that, that which is coming down is actually des described as the wife of the Lamb. And 
So we can debate if you want, okay, is it a city or is it the people? And I say yes. That whatever God has ordained includes us. And what John saw was absolutely stunning. It was glorious. Most of you know that in a former life, I did wedding pictures. I know y'all can't imagine me running around at a wedding and doing all this kind of stuff, but I did. And I never saw a bride that ever walked down an aisle that wasn't stunning, that wasn't glorious, that hadn't prepared all week for that, for that moment. And so it is God that has assured that those that His Son has saved through the shedding of His blood will indeed be glorified. They will be, will be more stunning than any bride that has ever walked an aisle. And so, we, we the people of God, the church of the living God, we descend from heaven and this great announcement is made. And I don't know if there's... I don't know how you put in numerical order or, or, you know, in order of greatness, uh, the great pronouncements of God. But verse 3 has to rank as one of the greatest things that God has accomplished. That, and, and here's the thing. God created, and He certainly created human beings for the purpose of fellowship, for the purpose of dwelling with them, for Him dwell, dwelling among Him. And because of sin, God banned humanity from His presence, okay? But His design, His determination since that day has been to call people back to Himself, a people among whom He would dwell. And now we see the ultimate consummation of His purpose to have a people, a redeemed people, a reconciled people. And He is going to dwell among those people and He is going to dwell among them forever and they're going to know His perfections and they are going to be... So overwhelmed, they're going to be so captivated by the beauty of God. They're going to know a joy that, that, that only the pleasures of this life, all of the pleasures of this life can only very faintly foreshadow and suggest we're going to know God. We're going to see Him as He is because we're going to be like Him. Remember the, the whole deal with Moses. I want to see your glory. And God, no, you can't handle it. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of, just a, just a tad. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a, of a spectacle of, of who I am and, and what I am. We could not handle the glory of God, but we're going to be so transformed that we can, can imbibe the great glory of Almighty God and we will be captivated. We will be overwhelmed. We will rejoice and revel. Forever, because God has accomplished His purpose to dwell among men. And just to get ahead of myself a little, why is this gathering essential? Because it is the expression of the reality that God dwells among His people. That's why we physically show up. So, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He has claimed them as His people. He will be with them. Verse 4. I have found life to be full of tears. I'm not saying life is bad. In fact, I will say with whatever pagan company came up with the t-shirts and the sweatshirts and the slogans, life is good. Okay? I believe life is good. When I stand before a, fu a funeral crowd 
Death is bad. Life is good. But life is tough. Life is difficult. Life is characterized by afflictions. Life is, is characterized by the, re, the reality that in any and every human relationship, someone eventually gets left with a broken heart. And we weep over the realities of that segregation and separation. And one day, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the, he goes through a, a list of seven things that are characteristic of this fallen order, and they're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. No, no, he'll wipe away every tear. And then, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things, they have passed away. There's not even going to be night anymore because it is going to be the, the illumination of the glory of God that the, there will never be a need for night. The, the curse will have been reversed. Revelation 22, 3. And so, we will be refreshed fully by the spring of the water of life. Now, because we're modern people, we do not appreciate a cold drink of water. That's safe to drink. But in the ancient world, life and death depended on a water source. And water was precious. How we need, and we should know as believers, we need drinks from this living water. And we will have it again without end. We will know, we will be refreshed fully. And then the verse 7 is a bit of an exhortation. And the old, I think in the old King James, uh, the word conquerors is, uh, I think, typically translated overcomer. I can think of an old Sunday school teacher. He was actually a cousin that probably... 40 years older than I was that used to teach a young marriage Sunday school class. He became very fascinated with Revelation and you know we were not quite as into it as he was. But the thing he kept coming back to, the overcomers. The overcomers. The overcomers. Now, sometimes I'll use the two words. I will talk about the preservation of God and the perseverance of the saints. That's what we're talking about here. Those who don't earn their salvation, those that are not keeping their salvation by their works, but by the very nature of that salvation working in them, they overcome. God has preserved them, He has saved them, and they are secure, and they are glorified in, in, in a sense, and He will accomplish His purpose, and they will overcome. They will endure. They will make it through this world. They may pass through this world or in, leave this world by way of violent and tragic death, but they will have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 8 speaks of the reality of judgment. And the reality of the believer's future and his reward and, and the glory, in a sense, doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we contrast it with the realities of the judgment of God told you many times my mother-in-law would often complain uh, to me. I never complained to her, but, but she would complain to me that preachers wouldn't preach on hell. And she went to a standard-issue Southern Baptist church. I mean, the preacher has the sport jacket, you know, the whole nine yards that, that, that you get, you know, when you get a seminary degree. And uh, 
And she would tell them, why don't, or ask them, why don't you preach on hell? Finally, they got about the fourth preacher in. I said, he, well, he'll preach on hell. Again, I don't want to be obsessed with it. But we need to warn people of the wrath to come. And we need to rejoice that we have been delivered from the wrath to come. And so, again, this warning and this description is that, that just simply a, not an exhausted list, but a characteristic list, a representative list of the way sinners live. Okay? And so, again, we look forward that we will have escaped the just punishment that we deserve. And so, again, John once again goes back and describes the glory of the bride and then again mixes his images and begins to describe the physicalities of this city descending out of heaven. And uh, it's about 1,380 miles long and wide and deep. Uh, That extends from here to Denver, Colorado, if you want to know, if you want to put a, you know, a measurement on it. That's about the distance that you would get. So it's a big and it's a glorious city. And so that is our text. And we, we, we see that, that God has a sure and certain plan. So let's go back. And I want to talk about the, the, the origin of these people, first of all, so we kind of get it. And I begin with this, that we are created for worship as image bearers. And we've talked a lot. You know, how many things that are applicable to the Christian life begin with the concept of created in the image of God? That makes us distinct. That makes us unique. That, that makes us uh, have deep convictions about uh, uh, sexuality. That makes us have deep convictions uh, uh, about life and, and the value of life because we bear His image. God made us especially, and He made us especially for Himself. And given to us a, a unique uh, uh, type of intellect and an ability to relate and, and, a, and a concept of order and uh, morality, uh, all of these things are a part of what it means to, to bear the image of God and, and more. But we're under a curse. Yes, indeed, we still bear the image. Human beings are image bearers, but we are marred image bearers because we rebelled against God. And that, that desire that was God designed within us to, have, to know intimate and fulfilling, satisfying, gratifying fellowship with God, that was distorted in the fall. And we're constantly seeking that which will satisfy. We're constantly seeking that which is greater than. We're always looking for something to, to meet our needs, to, 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 to fill our senses. But because of the curse, because of our fallenness in and of ourselves, we will not find it. Oh, we'll seek. We'll seek. But we always create and or find an idol that ultimately will not satisfy. And God t- took a gracious 
initiative in, in calling out to Adam and he has been calling men and women out of their sin since the first call extended to Adam. Did Adam go seek God after sin entered his heart and he fell and he, and he came under the curse? Was he going around, oh my goodness, I've, I've lost this fellowship with God. I know something is missing. No, no, he simply felt guilt and he did not know where to go and it was God Almighty that took initiative that appeared in the garden and said, Adam, where are you, buddy? It was God who covered him, covered the guilt and the shame, and promised one that would reverse that curse. And so we see that in our fallenness, indeed we desire something, we seek something, and I, I kind of, I, I guess I've said this over the years in a lot of different ways, but let me tell you something. Every human being has a God, has a law, has a gospel, and they have a church. Every human being. Okay? Now, they may not be able to articulate in those terms what it is for them, but they comfort their own fallen consciousness with these things. This, this, is, what I, this is what I do to give me enough peace to function in this world. This is, you know, this is my, my law that, that we... You know, just be nice to each other or something, you know, some innocuous kind of phrase like that. That we just be good people. If I hear from the culture one more time, if you do this or you do that, that is how you love your neighbor. No, the, man, the way you love your neighbor is you tell them about Jesus Christ. And so, we find because of the seeking, the profound and perverse wickedness of men across the face of the earth and God passed a judgment on the earth and God delivered a people. Noah's family. And, and, and I, I think the ark does function as a picture for us. Who overcame the flood? Who endured? Who was preserved? It was those that were on the ark. Who will persevere? Who will be preserved? Who will endure the flood that is here and is coming? It is the people of God inside the ark of God, the church, the true church of the living God, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that have been redeemed according to His purpose and through the accomplishment of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so after the flood, we find all of humanity gathering for church. They called it Babel. Oh, we need significance. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. We're going to have a, a rallying point so we will not be dispersed. God said, go once again and fill the earth. No, we're going to be right here because we're going to achieve greatness in and of ourselves. Does that sound like anything we've heard before? And God judged them. And folks, let me tell you this. I believe it was a gracious judgment. It was a preserving judgment. That the evil that would have been perpetuated by the united hearts and minds of fallen men had they remained at Babel, they would have destroyed themselves with the knowledge and the unity that they had because they were perverse. And God scattered them for their own good. It was a judgment. But it was a judgment that came as a part of what God was doing to preserve a humanity 
and to preserve a particular family within that fallen humanity. That man's name was Abraham. That God called out of the dispersion at Babel, out of the church of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of the, the fallen and false gospels and idols of that world, he calls this man and says, I have got a plan that I'm going to put into motion, actually continue in motion through you. And I am going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through what I'm going to do in and through you. And so we know that story, how that, that nation began to grow and thrive after Joseph brought them all into Egypt. And under Moses, God delivered them from and to and for. He brought them through the desert. And, and, and really kind of the idea of the church, which the English word church is the translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which is a translation of the Hebrew word kahal, which has to do with assembly. And God assembled that nation at the base of Mount Sinai and announced to them, guess what? I'm your God, you're my people. I've decided it, it's finished. And He established a covenant with them. Now, it was a flawed covenant. It was a covenant that would fail. But it was, it was designed to preserve this people to the ultimate purpose of God could be fulfilled through the greater son of Abraham and David in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be in His Son and through His Son, through the accomplishment of His cross, that the ultimate ecclesia, the called out, ek from Kaleo, to call, to call out a people. How does God call out a people? By the proclamation of the gospel. And God is calling a people. As, just as He established an ancient nation, He is still calling and establishing a people. A people that, that are a promised people. And we saw it in the prophets that Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming when I'm going to establish a new covenant. Not just one that supersedes or follows, but something really different and distinct. Yes, I've made a covenant with this nation, but it was a covenant that was flawed, and it was a covenant that, that was really designed to fail. In fact, the, the, the point was their failure. That they could see that the blood of good uh, bulls and goats could not attain. That, that their legalistic external righteousness would never satisfy a holy God. That there must be something else. And that God designed that He would establish a new people. Not specifically and genetically related to this man Abraham. But a, a nation of people that would be unique. And they would be distinct. And they would come from every place in the world and they would be called to Him through the proclamation of the gospel and God would write on their hearts the law and simply what that means is that they would have a level of understanding and obedience to God that national Israel never fully fathomed. They did not understand that by definition if you're a part of this new covenant that God has done something unique in you 
that he did not do normatively in the life of Israel. Now, long story, not going to get into it. The Old Testament saints were regenerate. But you did not have to be regenerate to participate in that particular covenant. If you behaved yourself, typically God would bless you and give you good things. But that is not the same thing as knowing a holy God in the forgiveness of sins, okay? Those that knew a holy God in the forgiveness of sins, they trusted in His graciousness, and they were born again to see the truth of Almighty God. That's why God could, Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced as he lifted the knife to plunge it into the, the heart of his son Isaac to, to do the act that he could not imagine that he would ever do. I believe, I believe he saw, I believe he saw the ultimate sacrifice of the beloved son. And he saw that, that in the replacement, in the, the ram caught by his, his horns, he came to understand that there was going to be a substitute and there would be one that would die and there would be one who shed his blood for the sake of a called out people. And so we live in the day of what Joel prophesied, a unique working of the Spirit. We read the account of the establishment of the church this morning from Acts chapter 2. The account of the Spirit coming upon the people of God gathered in the upper room at Jerusalem and described with uh, great visible tongues of fire and, and, and a roaring sound. Uh, again, a display similar maybe to, to what was experienced at Sinai with the quaking and the, the loud blare of the trumpets and the dark cloud. It was a, a, a physical, visible phenomenon that God revealed Himself. But, but it wasn't just an external reality. It became an internal reality that God did something in their hearts that was unique and He formed the church. And they went out and what did they do? They boldly proclaimed the gospel. And that's why Jesus could say, I will build my church. He didn't say, I, I'm, guys, I got this crazy plan. This thing with Israel has been good, but it hadn't been great. And I'm going to take people that have been at war with each other. I'm going to take people that hate each other because of the color of their skin. I'm going to take a people that have nothing in common. I'm going to take people that wouldn't normally even hang out together. And you're going to preach the gospel to this diverse group. And they're going to be saved. They're going to be called out. That my father has a, a plan. And he has chosen from all of eternity past a bride that I would enter the world and redeem. The, son, the Father has promised to the Son a bride, and the, bride, the Son has said, I will redeem my bride. And the Father says, and I will secure that bride from all, for all of eternity by the working of my Spirit. And so Jesus could confidently say, we're going to try. We're going to try. I just don't know how it's going to work. It may... It, it may, it, it may happen. No, 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 no. He said, God, I'm, I'm going to build my church. And what else? The gates of hell. The gates of COVID. The, the gates of whatever you want to name. 
they will not prevail. Why? Because I've got a plan. My father has a plan, and, and, and we see it, that, 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 that eventually they're going to be gathered in heaven, and they're going to be perfected, and then they're going to come back, and they're going to know the perfections of my glory forever and ever. And my point in, in kind of beginning here, kind of beginning at the end, we need to look at the horizon. I've never flown an airplane. I'm afraid of heights, so I probably won't be flying an airplane. But I know something about an airplane. That the way you keep the wings from doing this number, you look at the horizon. Because you can get all disoriented and, you know, fly yourself into a ditch. And let me tell you something, church. If you don't keep your eyes on the horizon, if all you're going to think about is the culture, and the politics of the day, and all of this and all of that, you're going to fly yourself in the ditch. You've got to look at what God has promised to do. Jesus is going to build His church. He has built this ark, and the floods are going to come, and we are going to endure. We are overcomers by very, very, different, very definition. And, and folks, we are a glorious and a beautiful bride because we're the people of God. And so in that, let us think and let us meditate and let us prepare for life in 2021 and 22 and 20, whatever. Whatever the days, whatever they happen to be. Because we are the church that Jesus has said He would build. The glorious bride of Christ. I'm going to pause right there. I will come back to this next time. Uh, Y'all didn't listen very fast this morning. And so uh, it's all on y'all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, for the reality, for the promise of your church. May we fulfill our purpose of bringing to you glory. And God, when you are glorified among us, we are indeed a satisfied people. We are people whose lives are characterized by joy. That it's when we take our eyes off of the glorious horizon, we become paralyzed. We become panicked by the things that we face in this life. And Lord, we know that there are things that people face that are serious and complicated. And we wouldn't make light of those things. But as Paul spoke of in Romans 8, I do not compare the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. What a bold and confident statement. And God, it's true. Because indeed, your Son will build His church, His glorious bride. And we lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.